Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. This time we have a VIP, Justin Berg, GM of sport and all-round head honcho. He took some time last week to talk to John and I, and we asked him about his life in the sport, how the games are shaping up, and what's in the future for European CrossFit. As always, there's a lot to say, so let's get to it. Welcome to the Europe is Coming podcast, taking you inside the minds of Europe's best CrossFit athletes and the people behind them. This is the first time we've had three people on the podcast at the same time. Normally it's just one and uh, one interviewer, uh, one interviewee and me. Uh, but this time I'd like to welcome Justin Berg, GM of sports. And alongside me is John Singleton, coach, head coach for the program. Welcome, guys. Thank you so much for your time today. And firstly, I wanted to know a little bit more about you, because until the beginning of this year, I wouldn't say that I would really knew your name or, the, or who you were or what you were doing. And I think that a lot of the people who follow CrossFit in Europe would probably also be interested to know who is Justin Berg and how did he get into CrossFit? Okay. Um... So uh, I've, I've been around for a while. So I was um, in 2006, I found CrossFit. And so uh, there was some serendipity there that there were no CrossFit games at that time. And I was doing CrossFit because my roommate found it and um, he was sore all the time. And I thought he was an idiot. And I said, you're doing it wrong, but I'll go try a workout with you. And I can't recall which workout it was, but it had kettlebell swings, which I'd never done before. And I was also really sore the next day. So I, I kind of got hooked. And for about a year, I was training CrossFit and seeing terrific results. And I had played um, collegiate sports. I had trained uh, with aspirations to be a professional baseball player. Um, and so I was very accustomed to training and having a training mindset and, and using that as a discipline. Um, but I was seeing results that to that point in my life were unfathomable to me, and especially in that short period of time. And so I was having a lot of fun and I got in pretty good shape and there were no CrossFit games in 2006. And so I looked around and said, what are the fit people doing? And I, uh, my cousin was a triathlete coach. And so I decided that I would give my hand to triathlon. And so I bought a bike and I competed and progressively my fitness became worse as my um, endurance training was getting better. And that was when kind of the light bulb moment clicked for me, which is I could be in really good aerobic shape, but actually be quite weak. Um, and actually fragile compared to where I was uh, when I was training CrossFit. So, uh, so I quit doing that. And, uh, and at that time, I was working for a sport technology company in the United States. And we pr provided the statistical backbone for the PGA Tour, the NHL, the NBA, and several different Olympic sports, um, especially in tennis. And so I was traveling a lot in the United States. And at that point in time, there was usually one CrossFit gym in every PGA Tour city that I would go to. And so I just made a habit of dropping into these local gyms. And at that time, I started developing um, relationships with people like Bill Henniger and Katie Henniger, who had a CrossFit affiliate in Gahana, Ohio, uh, which was near a golf tournament. Jeff Tucker, who led the gymnastics program for CrossFit for, uh, for a series of years. Um, people like Dave Werner, who was the first CrossFit affiliate in Seattle. And so it was just this really interesting time where I was gathering uh, a lot of personal connection with people. Um, and then in 2008, after I took my level one course, I decided I definitely want to open an affiliate. And so I, I took my sports and technology career and put it on the side and said, I want to go all in and I want to learn uh, everything there is to know about being the best possible coach and running a business. 
And this was on the back of Greg, um, our founder at the time, saying that you could get paid like a professional teaching people how to move well and eat right. And I remember thinking that's all I've wanted to do is get paid fair and have a big impact on people's lives. And I didn't think that was a possibility. I didn't think you could make enough money being a coach. And so uh, instead, I was pursuing other opportunities professionally. And so when Greg said that, I decided to give it a shot. And, uh, and I opened a gym uh, called CrossFit Southside in Jacksonville, Florida, on the East Coast of the United States. And, um, and with my uh, girlfriend at the time, now my wife, um, we launched the gym. And this is right before the economic collapse of 2008. <laughs> and we were sort of aloof to everything. We said, hey, we're going in. I'm quitting a day job where I was making good money. Um, and I'm going to you know, try my hand at this CrossFit thing. Everything worked out very well for us. Our gym grew. Uh, we developed a, a wonderful, vibrant community. Um, and out of that, I was offered a chance to join CrossFit seminar staff. And so um, I joined CrossFit seminar staff in 2009. And at that point, I also started making um, connections with people like Dave Castro and Tony Budding by being on seminar staff and my sport background started coming into play. And so I eventually joined the team in 2010 as a full-time employee and the first hundred uh, percent focused employee just on the CrossFit games. So at that point, Dave and Nicole were primarily focused on the training business and Tony Budding was primarily responsible for leading the media side of CrossFit. And then the games uh, were sort of a nascent property. And Greg's charter to me was, you know, don't distract the rest of the company. You know, we're focused on training trainers and supporting these gyms and telling our story. Um, and that was the year that we would leave. Um, and so in 2010, actually, that was um, kind of the first year that we were in Carson, California, um, in a big professional venue, which we were very small. So we did not sell out the stadium in that first year. Um, but there was a high potential for distraction. And so there was a lot of work to do. And, uh, and I joined the team at that point. Woo. Things went fast. didn't they? Well, the, the ball got rolling pretty quickly. Um, so what's it been like taking over the whole running of the games again, just before the open this year, because it was, it was, uh, Quite a, a dramatic start to 2022 for you guys. How has it been so far since January? So uh, there's no shortage of drama over the last five years. That's that's for sure. Um, I'll start by saying it's a it's a terrific honor, and so it's a it's a humbling thing to be responsible for a team that has so much potential to contribute to the CrossFit space. Um, and Dave did an extraordinary job. Um, I think he was the right guy for the time for a very long time, doing all the things that helped enable the sport to grow and really kind of stay committed to the original kind of core methodology uh, for CrossFit, which is at the games we have to create the definitive test for the world's fittest people. And um, so it's been a, a great honor to take that on um, and be the next person responsible for that. Um, we also have a terrific team. So the, the pressure that I feel is to perform and continue to grow the sport um, and also empower these terrific leaders that we have on our team and that are in some cases outside the company, but are really powerful um, agents of growth for our sport and for our community. So to try to do this in a way where we've got many different people bought into the same process is important to me uh, to improve communication with athletes and between our different teams is really important. Um, and then to make sure that we're planning forward so that we're less reactive and we're more forward thinking in the way we're approaching uh, what is possible for our sport. Um, so that's been a lot of fun. It's been a, a lot for our team this year also, because the, the change obviously right before the open 
um, is a lot because it's the beginning of our season. Um, but the team is really rallied behind that. And also we've taken this year and said, if it's going to be difficult, let's try to get as much done and kind of use this as a push year. And there's been years where the programming at the CrossFit games sort of pushed the athletes further than in other years. And for us internally, we're using this as a push year to not just execute the games uh, with Adrian Bosman as our lead programmer and director of competition, um, but also to plan for the 2023 and beyond seasons and announce those season changes in uh, you know this year. So hopefully at the beginning of the fourth quarter. So we're trying to compress a whole lot of things. Um, our focus is 100% on executing the finals, um, but also shortly after that, the team will rally. And then the intent is to finalize the rule book and the season formats for 2023, and then lay out a roadmap for what people can expect in 24 and beyond, at least directionally. So, um, so it's been a busy year, um, but we're all, I think, uh, kind of fired up about the next um, opportunity for us, which is to be on site and execute an awesome finals in Madison. Preparing for the games now, what is your day-to-day schedule like? The, the day-to-day schedule for me is a lot of downrange planning, which I'm trying to taper out of. And then um, really just checking in and trying to support the team as we put the final touches on the presentation of the games. And so, um, you know, over the last two weeks, there's not a lot that we can change in terms of you can't ship in more equipment, um, you can't bring in new staff, you know, cheap or efficiently. Um, so really in about a week, you'll have to play the hand that you're dealt. Um, so right now we're still finalizing, making sure that the broadcast teams are communicating with the competition teams, that they understand the concept behind some of these workouts, that we have the right personnel and coverage plans to make sure that the awesome test that we're going to share with the athletes will also be fully captured and that we can capture it both with live content, social media content, and then also um, documentary and behind the scenes footage that'll air after the games. So it's a lot of just making sure that teams are connected and communicating with each other. And then now starting to share out information with the athletes themselves about what they can expect around check-in, what the schedule for the overall week looks like for athletes, their coaches and fans and then start walking people in philosophically to what the CrossFit games are and, uh, and what people should expect. So, um, so that's what it looks like. A lot of media, a lot of planning, and a lot of uh, Zoom calls that I'm looking forward to <laughs> dropping soon. I know John's got some questions on behalf of the athletes about the, the shape of the games this year. Yeah, I mean, actually, I, I would love to start... Um, you know, actually, one thing is that your kind of history of how you went to the sport really resonates, you know, really going that spit and stored us start, you know, throwing a kettlebell around and, and being sore the next day. And really, that was that was kind of my start to CrossFit as well. It was, uh, and it's, I think it's amazing to see how the sport has grown in that amount of time. And I think that, you know, sometimes people look at it and go, oh, we've got all this way to go. But actually, when you look back at where it was in like 2001, 2006 2007 and compare it to to where we are now the, the growth has been huge and i'd just be really interested to know like the um like if we take the sport of crossfit the bigger picture of that over the next five years and, and where you would like to see that go oh man this is this is my favorite question <laughs> so I have a, uh, a doc, uh, so a shared presentation that is in a perpetual state of change. 
Um, and, and the title for that document is The Future of Sport. So it's something that since January, I've been very focused on. Um, gathering a lot of input for that is what we've been focused on for the first half of the year, making sure that we're collecting feedback from uh, different athletes from different parts of the world in different divisions at different ability levels. So not just the games athletes in the top of the top, but also people who participated in sanctionals or people who are semifinal levels athletes, or maybe quarterfinalists or just, you know, first time uh, or kind of recreational athletes. Um, so we've put a lot of thought into this and uh, soon after the finals, we'll be sharing sort of a stake in the ground for where 2023 will be uh, going. And then after 2023, where we'll be ramping. And um, so I, what I'll share is that directionally, what I think is really important is that uh, we want to continue to grow the sport at all levels. And I think if you take the concept of a pyramid, um, we have a very narrow base with a very tall top of that pyramid. And so we've spent a tremendous amount of attention over the last couple of years focused on elite athletes. Um, and yet we only have a couple hundred thousand athletes who are registered participants in our sport. Um, I would love to see that number grow dramatically. And so the base growing wider will increase the opportunities for the athletes who are at the top of that pyramid. Um, but really the part of that pyramid that I think is the most important to me is sort of the middle, making sure that there's an opportunity for people to play our sport after the open um, and meaningfully contribute to their training and also their sense of participation in the sports season that is more than just three or four weeks out of their year. And so I would like to see us tap into the growing network of licensed competitions that are taking place around the world, many of which are performing at a pretty high level. Um, but I also want to set the right expectations for people who are playing at sort of a recreational or competitive level um, that are not necessarily pros. And I think there's been this notion that people that are in the middle of that pyramid are exploited or they're victims or they're, um, you know, they're disrespected in some way. And I want to elevate that and change the conversation because I think these event organizers in many cases are providing awesome opportunities to celebrate people, to give them a chance to express their hard-earned fitness, um, the hard work that they've put in, the training, their skills that they've learned um, from their coaches. And so um, I think we should celebrate that. You know, when people play golf or if they compete in Ironman triathlons, um, very few of them expect that they should be compensated for that effort. Most of them embrace the challenge, the development, um, the discipline that comes with that type of training, and they're celebrated for that. And I really want to get back to celebrating that achievement and that sense of discipline uh, for athletes in our sport. Um, and at the same time, I think if we grow participation in things like the Open and we start celebrating the live experience of going and representing your gym or representing your coach or representing your progress on the competition floor, I think that will create a lot of the financial opportunities and media showcase opportunities that would benefit the whole community, not just the top athletes, but affiliates, event organizers, um, and really kind of center around the best athletes or the best trained and the best training takes place in CrossFit gyms with CrossFit coaches. And so, so I think that's directionally where I see the future going is way more chances to participate for people at all levels. Um, a celebration of people who are recreational and competitive athletes that are not yet professional. Um, and then more of a concrete and statistically um, unbiased, meaning just an objective ranking of where people are so that they know where they uh, sit today and where they uh, might want to progress to in the future. Um, and it frustrates me to no end when they're um, 
uh, everything that we do in some cases seems subjective. And in a sport that is so objective, you know, you know, you're getting more fit. If your lifts are getting heavier, your times are getting faster. Um, you've got more reps in the same period of time, your power is increasing. Like we can track that. Um, and yet in a lot of ways we look at athletes and it's still either a popularity contest or it's a subjective rating. And I want to eliminate that starting next year where we won't ever eliminate it. I think it'll always be the subject for conversation. Um, is somebody better than their statistical kind of rank? Um, but I think we're, we're better than that. And I think launching a statistical program in my background, you know, so I, I worked for, the world's leader in the collection, storage, and distribution of sports data. So like I come in with a uh, serendipitous background in using data to tell a story in professional sports. Um, and I want to tap into that and make sure that that's part of what we can layer into our sport in the next couple of years. And on the, because obviously it's talking about kind of the, the base and the middle section of the uh, pyramid and for, for the elite athletes of the sport and and where a lot of a lot of people are working hard to get to, do you see kind of big format changes in terms of the season changing? Like right now, I think we've had this this kind of old established or new established method of open quarterfinals, semifinals games. Um, and also, if there's you know, there's always talk of um, kind of major events happening outside of the of the US as well, and I think that's a lot of talk on Europeans' minds. It's like Will we see different, more events, even the games happening um, outside of the U.S.? And will, for the kind of elites of the sport, would there possibly be any format changes? Well, I think first you're already seeing that there are more events taking place in Europe than anywhere else in the world. And so Spain, for example, is on fire right now with more licensed competitions. It seems like it's a terrific training atmosphere and people are flocking there to compete. Um, and Europe is leading the way in licensed events. And I think in a lot of ways, uh, they're producing some, uh, some really high quality competitions that are largely not seen by most you know, fans inside the United States. So I think Europe has taken that ball and advanced it um, in a way that is not a surprise to Europeans, but is a surprise that you know, Americans predominantly are going, hey, we don't even know that's happening. But I think that's also part and parcel with the... Um, the development of European athletes, where I think they're competing at a high level, they're competing more frequently, they're competing as other high level athletes. And they're really, you guys are sharpening the sword in a way that ends up landing at the CrossFit Games and performing well on that leaderboard, but it's not an accident. And it's not just, hey, there's better genetics or there's better, like there's more practice, coaching, competition opportunities taking place in Europe than maybe anywhere else in the world right now. So I think the goal for us going forward is to tap into that. And so not necessarily for CrossFit to, um, I don't think the, the only way to achieve that is for the CrossFit games to take place in Europe. I think that's sort of a, um, a zero sum game. You know, I would like to see us expand and there are more opportunities. Um, and we're, our team is, you know, ta- taking a look at that, what that looks like, what the health and sustainability of the existing semifinals model looks like. And what's the next iteration that will be a really good cornerstone that we can build on for the next three to five years. And I don't think we're there yet. I think we still have to make some changes, but I am committed to that four stage competition season. So I really like the open quarterfinals taking place and allowing a broad group of athletes to participate and kind of enter the ramp. And I love the notion of in-person semifinals and the in-person finals. 
And so we'll do everything in our power to really push forward on in-person competition at semifinals for more athletes. Um, but at the same time, I think that's not the only side. So like that's kind of CrossFit's uh, slice of the pie, but we also want to support the growth of the overall event ecosystem. And so we're looking at ways that we can tie into some of those other events and meaningfully include them into the sports season. I think one easy way to look at would be the inclusion of licensed events in the future in an overall ranking system. Um, also looking at strength of field for some of those events and saying, are there certain privileges that really strong strength of field events should have in terms of either their promotion or uh, or some other perfect privilege to the athletes who win those competitions. And so we're putting a lot of things on the table, um, most of which we've heard from the community. Um, so either from athletes during various points in the last couple of years or new concepts that are coming out, um, you know, most of these are based on things that we've heard. So, um, so yeah, that, um, I, I think I only answered one of your two questions, but that was the, uh, I do think that more events and what Europe is doing is really uh, in many ways leading the world in terms of quality and number of competitions right now. What, when you yeah. say the rankings, do you mean like the way that, for example, professional tennis players are ranked? Is that how you would, you would compare it? Like if you've got different competitions all over the world and then you've got the world number one that comes through a point system that way. Yeah, that's, that's one of my hopes for next year is that you need to be able to go to the CrossFit Games website and be able to tell right now who's the top ranked man competing in CrossFit and the top ranked woman competing in CrossFit. Um, and I don't think that's uh, impossible to do. I think we have to create the right criteria. We need to decide what inputs will contribute to that ranking. Um, but I think that will eliminate some of the concerns that I've heard from athletes. And I hear this frequently that um, there's a notion of favoritism or there's a notion of um, popularity leads certain decision-making. And, um, you know, that's not our desire. That's not the desire of our team. That's not how we think of it either. I think there could be a public perception of that, but we go to extraordinary lengths to treat all athletes as a class and try to provide the exact same level of competition fairness for all athletes in that. Um, but I also think a, a worldwide ranking system that is objective and controlled by CrossFit and is public. So it's transparent and everybody knows what goes into it. Um, I think that will lead in a lot of ways because endorsement dollars um, can be tied to certain things. You know, I would love for athletes to use that in future negotiations to say, when I achieve certain objective standards, not just a win at the CrossFit Games or a win at the Butcher's Lab, um, but when I come in, um, maintaining a top 10 rating would be subject to a bonus uh, or a performance incentive in a contract um, or, you know, three podiums in competitions that are of a very high standard should trigger some type of an incentive. That's a way that I think we can support the objective and more of a meritocracy uh, when it comes to financial incentives in our sport. Those are things that CrossFit wouldn't necessarily pay out of our pocket, but that we can start creating more of an objective criteria so that athletes can go gain that in other licensed events or in other places that they choose to perform. What do you think about that, John? I think it's a great idea. I mean, I, I completely agree with the, um, you know, first of all, the idea of like just an introduced level system within CrossFit and, and, and athletes, you know, we're obviously biased here in Europe, but athletes are crying out to compete across all levels from beginner, intermediate, um, and then also advanced. And I, I do think that the advanced always get, I suppose they kind of direct 
the direction in, in, a, in a way. And then actually what tends to happen is it tends to trickle down as to what happens. And then you see examples of that, you know, when something gets introduced at the games, like the pegboard, you know, all of a sudden every gym <laughs> across the world has pegboards. And so the same thing kind of happens in competition format, that whatever happens at the games try, almost gets kind of replicated downstream a lot of the competitions through years. And, and one of the reasons why CrossFit competitions tend to be you know, three days long longer is really because of the format um, of what's happened at the games before and so I think that there's lots of opportunity there um, with you know with the intermediate athletes beginner athletes and I think they're crying out to have some kind of more of a structure I suppose put in place and I think if that could be created in a good way that would be very useful and then you know I think with you know I'm obviously biased to the elite athletes because I spend all day every day um with them and, and it's, it's always interesting for us to know kind of the directional changes of CrossFit and, and some possible format changes I, I think in essence athletes coaches and the people involved in that do do appreciate consistency um, having like the, the structures now is is appreciated because it allows you to plan a little bit more and, and a lot of work and planning does go into the, the season and helping people perform the best yeah and I think that's something that we're trying to balance also, which is we do want to maintain a certain level of consistency, but we also have a responsibility to drive the sport forward. And I think that there, over the last five years, I mean, it's been a really interesting time to play our sport. There's been so much change and variability season over season, um, going back to from 2018 to where we are today. Um, and the negative side of that is that it has really forced athletes to adapt on an annual basis in many different ways about which events they choose to travel to, how they need to schedule their training windows, um, how much progress they can make in an off season versus how much do they need to be kind of game ready at any given moment. Um, and the goal is that when we leave this year and we announce 2023 and beyond that athletes will be able to settle into a multi-year cadence that they are familiar with. And then that's not to say that things won't change, but I think that the things that will change will be improvements and kind of nuanced changes uh, based on what level you're competing at um, that will be directionally the same. So like you'll know the big marks coming up. And then as we layer on new changes, those will be done in a way that people have time to prepare for those. So it shouldn't be a surprise. And also it'll be done with feedback from athletes and different groups. Um, inputting into this process. So it shouldn't seem like a foreign concept, like CrossFit just unilaterally decided this is what we're going to do. This will be done with the athletes themselves, their representatives and business managers, our partners, the event organizers, all feeding into this notion. Um, so even if we don't all agree to it, or I'm sure what everyone will want is uh, one, they'll say that's too much change. And then another camp will say, you need to go faster. Um, and that sounds like a very CrossFit conversation, right? Um, but the idea would be people are at least informed of how we got here. And if you don't like it, you'll at least understand where we're going and you have time that you can kind of adjust to that. Um, so yeah, that, I'm excited about that. So I think that's what people should expect is that this won't look like a wholesale different program. It'll look like a cadence that sounds and feels familiar from a training perspective and then you can look forward to a year or two away from now and say, hey, I understand what's coming downstream. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I, I like that. And I think that's something that we've heard also, John, is consistency matters. I want to hit on one other thing, too, which I'm really glad that you brought up the levels program. Um, one of the notions around the levels program is, you know, the games leads and is very visible to people. And 
sometimes people try to recreate what happens at the games at different uh, lower level competitions. And I think it's a, a duty for our team to really be more proactive in the future saying, you know, programmers at these licensed competitions should really identify who they're trying to attract to their competition. And then the programming should be matched to the athletes who are competing. And so um, I want to step forward and I think our team is going to do this next year, but the notion of uh, when people identify as a licensed event, also declaring what level of athlete you're trying to recruit to this event. And so, for example, if this is a, a lower level, um, so more of a, a beginner or intermediate competition, it does not need to be three days long or five days long with 10 competitions and you know, super difficult skills and high loading and high rep and lots of movement redundancy. You don't have that responsibility. Like It's not the job of an intermediate competition to declare the fittest person. It's to create a competitive experience that rewards training and returns people to their gym and their coach ready to make more progress after that. And so I think we would see that as identifying the level of athletes after the open and then matching that to, hey, this event is programming for levels seven and below, or this event is programming for levels eight and above, in which case you should be prepared for uh, a lot more volume, or you should be prepared for uh, higher volume or higher you know, skill requirements and things like that. Um, but we had the experience, there was a, a woman on our team who's a very competitive uh, CrossFit athlete, has competed several years at regionals, and she shared the experience of going to local competitions and feeling bad because she took a podium place where she was there to have fun and feeling like she was almost ostracized from the other women she was competing with. Like, hey, why'd you show up here and take first prize? And saying she would have traveled, you know, three states over if it meant that she could compete with girls who she was competing with at semifinals. And even if she wasn't winning, she wanted to go wherever they were going to go because that was the level of competition that she was seeking out. And so I think we can do a better job with identifying athlete levels, identifying the level of programming that will be at an event and trying to match those two things together. And so I think that's the, the goal of our licensed event program over time. And then for the top events that are levels 10 and above, um, zooming in on strength of field and saying, hey, this is a really awesome event because objectively they've got the best athletes. We need to cover that event or we need to talk about that event or we need to, you know, maybe there's special kind of privileges that that event would earn. You traveled to London for strength and depth for the semifinal, which is where I bumped into you. And um, I wanted to know what your impressions were of the European semifinals. So I've been a fan of the European semifinals, the European regionals. I've been a fan from afar of the licensed events taking place um, in Europe for a really long time. And th this goes way back to I'm old enough to remember um, the regionals that were run in the Ballerup Super Arena, um, you know, in Denmark. And so there has been, you know, just an awesome class of event organizers and volunteers and team leaders in Europe um, that has continued to proliferate. So, um, so one, I think there, there's a really strong history and heritage there that has continued to grow. Um, but specifically, I thought the strength and depth competition um, was great. Um, that's a, a, a venue that I was familiar with. We had run the CrossFit, the inaugural CrossFit Invitational in that same arena, I want to say 10 or 11 years mm. ago. I probably offended Sam Briggs when I said, remember last time we were here? And she goes, <laughs> yeah, actually. <laughs> um, but um, 
I thought it was really well run. And the things that I liked about it was um, it was a great community event. Uh, that there were things happening at all levels. There were things for fans. There was things for local athletes who compete at their gym normally and had this chance to take on the community stage um, and be there in the same atmosphere. Um, and then there was also the main stage for the top athletes, for the men and women competing to go to the CrossFit Games. Um, so I thought it was, it was very well run. There's a terrific judging team there that I think is uh, extraordinary. I think they do a great job and don't receive enough credit. Um, and the same, there's a terrific group of team leaders and volunteers behind the scenes that enable these competitions to happen. And they uh, provide a lot of selfless service and um, they're not in the spotlight, um, but they're the kind of untold stories that are the backbone of making these stages that athletes get to play on. Um, so anyway, I, I thought they were terrific. And, um, and of course, the, the competition was sensational. So some good athletes and dramatic turns of events. And, uh, you know, that's that's the best part of sport. And also the you know, the saddest and the sweetest part of sport. Yeah. I was uh, really happy to listen to a recent podcast that you were on, the CrossFit podcast, talking about drug testing, because it felt to me as if you guys were really taking control of the narrative more, because I feel like you guys at CrossFit have been trying more and more to communicate with, with fans, with athletes, with the public this year than ever before. And I wanted to ask, how do you feel about commentators who make um, criticisms about the judging, for example, at Strength and Depth? And how, do you, how does it make you guys personally feel? Um, well, I guess two different topics, the so drug testing and people who criticize the judges in in-person uh, competitions. Um, so, you know, ultimately what I think is I spend very little time in that world. You know, most of my attention is spent on things that are building for the future. Um, and I found that um, I don't think there's a terrifically high level of conversation or dialogue on the topics that matter that take place on social media. So we've gone to great lengths to try to create better channels for communication to happen. One of those processes is we've implemented a divisional athlete committee. Um, so there are five different committees, one each representing the masters, the teenagers, the adaptive athletes, the individual athletes, and team athletes. And we've tried to include athletes from around the world on each committee. Sometimes that's not possible. Um, but the intent is that we can be creating constructive channels where people can share their experience as athletes, and they can launch criticisms or new ideas directly to our team in a way that those are included in the planning process for future years. We've also maintained a really strong, and I think increasingly, um, uh, we've both increased the cadence and the quality of the communication with the PFAA, um, who has done a good job, and also have a shared interest in building um, you know, standards of competition and you know, increasing the level of professionalism for their athletes as well. And then we've also had for several years now an uh, internal team that we call our Athlete Advisory Council um, that is composed of recently retired or sometimes actively competing um, individual athletes from around the world. And so we use each of these groups to try to take quality input from the athletes themselves. Um, uh, we've also used surveys and other things like that. So I think those are the channels where people can be heard more effectively. And also, even if they... Um, direct emails to our team are always read. Um, and then they're distilled down into action points. And then they're directly included in the planning process. 
And so I think there's been years where people didn't think that they were being heard and their only avenue for uh, change was to publicly, um, you know, take the social media. And so we'll never limit an athlete's voice. We're not trying to put words into their mouth. And we're also not, um, you know, trying to silence voices in the community. Um, but I do think that there's ways for um, the stakeholders, the people that really care about driving the sport forward to talk to us in ways that are easier for us to distill into action steps. Um, so anyway, we, we've gone to great lengths with that. So what happens in the comment section, I think is, you know, not necessarily designed to drive the sport forward, but is sometimes, you know, designed just to be a conversation and a conversation that becomes circular at some point. Um, so we're, we have a team that monitors those conversations full time also, and they also inject into our planning process, things that they've heard, themes that are important, topics uh, and athletes and other groups that are, you know, bringing things um, but we don't feel the same need to be reactive to those groups. You know, being reactive to our athlete advisory councils, the emails that we receive, those are the places that we spend most of our time and attention. I really feel the more that you the more that you guys communicate, the less opportunity there is going to be for speculation anyway. And I wondered about how how much communication do you think is appropriate for CrossFit to have with with people like me or um, a fan or an athlete. I mean, how much should we expect from CrossFit? Where will the where will the line be drawn? Yeah, I have no idea. I think if you were going to ask me in January, what I heard really clearly is more that there needs to be more dialogue. Um, but mostly, you know, dialogue's a two way street, and so we've been really focused on building a quality listening machine and a behavior for our team that we're listening to and making sure we understand the feedback that is being delivered to us. And then when we respond, it's making sure that when we share information out, that it's also being heard by the other party. Um, and I, I feel like there's many different ways that we can communicate. The group we're trying to talk to is the athletes. So when I'm talking about drug testing, I'm talking to the athletes. I'm trying to protect their reputations. I'm trying to respect the legitimacy of the sport that they compete in. Um, so I'm not talking to critics. I'm not talking to um, the comment section. I'm talking to the athletes that there is a team here that they're a part of. And we both have a role to play in this. And we're as strong as we are, um, you know, united. And so when other groups want to divide that and they want to direct, hey, this group is interested in that. This group is interested in something else. I reject that. I have very few conversations where people say my interests are different than what your interests are. When I talk to athletes and event organizers and their agents and partners and stuff, every single group that I talk to wants the same thing for CrossFit to grow, for CrossFit to have a bigger impact, and also for their independent interests to grow along with that. Um, but there's very few conversations where people go, hey, you should, you know, we're totally different. We don't want the same things. Um, but that also comes with personal dialogue. So one of the things that we're focused on also is when we speak, are we being heard? And I think that now there is there are more voices and there's more uh, total um there's, there's more conversations happening in more places. And it is a continuous frustration for me when we have, like, we will publish things in the hopper, for example, that try to educate athletes on CrossFit's drug testing program, what they can do to be prepared, um, to hold themselves to a high standard. And yet I do believe we still receive a very high number of accidental positives mm. where people are testing and failing their tests because they were not informed or they didn't hear these things. And then I have my team tell me that a quarter of the athletes have uh, unsubscribed from publications like the hopper. And I'm going great. We're talking, but we're not being heard. So I, I accept that. I think that's also part of communicating with 
um, with people in this day and age is that you have to say the same thing in multiple places so that it becomes heard and also remembered. And so I think that is part of the, you know, we want to speak more. Obviously, we uh, have spent a lot of time this year focused on speaking on CrossFit's channels so that athletes know that they can come to one place. And if they listen there, they'll be getting the information that they need, but also using other supporting channels to make sure that we're amplifying the things that we're talking about there and adding color and context, you know, so to ultimately, like my goal for the drug testing program is we just want fewer false uh, not false. We want fewer accidental failed tests. Mm. And so we can have a higher confidence that, Hey, we're catching people that are trying things or that. Um, but right now I still think we have a large group of people who are not thinking of themselves as professional athletes. They're accidentally arriving at competition. And then they're finding out about the legitimacy of our drug testing program when they're notified to submit a sample or that their lab results are, um, are, are positive. So, um, so anyway, I think we've got room to go on that, but I also think that there is a role for other people in the space to continue to add to the conversation. So I don't think that we're the only voice that matters. I think there's other people that have great insights and that they they share stories that we don't share. Um, and so I think that's there's a lot of room in this space for many people to be successful and to have uh, a voice in the in the growth of our sport. John, do you want to ask about the big European question? I, I don't know how, I, I think it's, it's more of like, um, it kind of goes into the specific questions. And I, I think one of the things obviously athletes are interested to know is uh, obviously over the last few years, the cuts have been quite um, controversial, you know, especially in 2019 when there was this um, huge cut. I know from speaking to some people that I think it, the opinion on the cuts is varied, but I think it'd be interesting to, here, like this year, if um, if there will be a cut system in place, only advancing a certain number of athletes, um, to kind of know that first. And as a follow-up question is like, there's sometimes, obviously 2019 was a bit different because so many people traveled to the games and the expense of traveling to the games is huge. And I think the one thing is people wanted to go there, felt like they put their best effort in. And because they didn't get that experience, they didn't feel like they they fully experienced the games. Yeah, 2019. I mean, that was tough. I mean, a lot of athletes came to the games, competed in one event. I think over 70 athletes came, competed in one event, and then um, were not able to continue. So they, they sat in the stands. Um, and that was a, a negative experience for a lot of people. It was a ne negative experience for our team. It was negative for those athletes. And I think that there were some positive stories that came out of that, where people believed that what they were doing by showing up and competing in one workout is that was still opening the door for athletes in their country and showing people that, Hey, we don't want to come last next time. Or if this athlete could make it to the games, maybe I see that and I live in Ecuador or some other place. And I go, I could beat that person. I want to go get that. So I think it served some purpose, but it was also, um, it created a negative experience for a lot of different groups. Um, I want to zoom out and talk about the why behind cuts. The why behind cuts has almost always been the same, which is we want is our responsibility to create a test that lives up to the title, the ultimate proving grounds and the fittest athletes on earth. And um, there are real logistical challenges with running a large group of athletes through that competition week. And so uh, cuts enabled us in that year to go from a very large field of athletes to a smaller field of athletes 
so that we could have more tests for the fittest man and the fittest woman alive or for the people who were competing for those podium positions. And if you did not have enough tests or the tests were not varied enough, I mean, you can't run lots of long events if you got over a hundred athletes competing for multiple days. It just limits the amount of you know hours in the day. Um, so the intent behind cuts is, uh, I'll, I'll zoom back. The intent going forward, and I know this is Adrian's position as well, is you know we want as many athletes to finish this test as possible. Um, but when there becomes a moment where we say, would we either have a better and more comprehensive test for the top athletes? And if that meant that we had to, in some cases, reduce the size of the field, um, that is fair play. Like that's acceptable. Um, how much and when those cuts happen is something that uh, gets a lot of attention on the team. Um, and then also after 2019, how do we do that in a way that uh, is respectful, that honors the athletes, that creates a full experience and gives them a chance to fully demonstrate what they're capable of. Um, so I think it's very different to have cuts um, before the final day of competition, once athletes have had maybe 10 tests, than it is to cut people after a single day of competition or two days of competition. So um, I won't get into the details of cuts. I will say that we will announce to the athletes in short order um, whether or not there will be cuts and the, the thought behind that very soon, actually. Um, but I think it's fair play and it's something that in our sport is just a logistical challenge. It's a, it's a logistical challenge and also kind of philosophical, which is we create this test for the fittest athletes alive. And in some cases, if we have to you know, slightly reduce the field or in some cases for the final events, reduce it uh, by a large extent, it's always to make sure that it's the best possible test. Um, and I think the way we do this going forward will be different than the way um, you know, than it happened in 2019. That's for sure. Okay. And our final question, because I know we're about to run out of time, is are the European athletes going to have more spots next year, Justin? I think, um, I don't know. We're, we're not decided on that. Will the European, I think that when the European athletes compete well and they compete often, they're going to earn more opportunities um, at the highest stages. And so, uh, like I said, I'm excited about a more object, objective way of determining that. Um, and it's based on the performance of the top athletes, not necessarily based on participation or based on, uh, other factors, but I think it should be based on the quality of the top athletes and the top athletes should have, um, more spots competing at the CrossFit games. Um, but while I say that there will always be avenues for other athletes in developing parts of the world to have some representation. So we do want to make sure that we're not, um, exclusively like we want to make sure that we're continuing to open doors. And so that means that even if they, there will be minimum amounts of spots that will still come from other developing parts of the world. But I do think the trick is to increase the number of spots for the top athletes, regardless of where they live. And if they earn it, then, they, um, then they'll receive those spots. Thank you. I'm looking forward to seeing lots of European athletes in the top 10 then this year. Now they know that's how they're going to do it. Well, I'll, I'll say that uh, before we part, you know, one of the things that's always impressed me and, um, so the Icelandic athletes in particular have always really impressed me. And I didn't think that any uh, athlete from that country has ever asked for something they didn't deserve. And they will fiercely fight for what they believe they've earned. Um, but they've never once in my experience asked for something that they didn't earn. And, and I uh, extend that to um, the, the top athletes around the world. I think that's a great characteristic in our sport, which is... Um, what you've earned is yours and you'll fight for that. But also um, the notion of, but I take pride in having earned it. 
and, and not asking for a handout or not asking for a system that favors me versus somebody else, but just going, um, you know, Hey, make sure that the top athletes that have earned it get it. And so we've heard that. And I think that's, you know, certainly a part of our thought process as we, uh, as we plan the future. Okay. Well, watch this space. Hopefully we'll know more after the games. There you go. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep doing it. We'll keep doing it together. So I look forward to, John, I look forward to seeing you uh, on site. I wish you, you and your athletes safe travels and, um, you know, good final weeks of preparation here. Yeah, and thank you for your time. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Justin. Thanks, Justin. It meant a lot that you made the time for us. We're looking forward to the games and all that you've got in store. Until next time, thanks for listening and bye-bye. Don't miss the next episode. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Europe is Coming is a programme production and hosted by Vicky McLeod.